the PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brad Soboleski, and today's episode focuses on drowning, otherwise known as submersion injury, which represents a major cause of morbidity and mortality in children. And especially as the warm weather months come up, it's important to understand both how we can assess and manage children who have been submerged underwater, but also prevent injury. And as has been the case in the past, I have a special guest on this episode. So allow me to introduce you all to Joe Finney, a pediatric emergency medicine fellow from Washington University in St. Louis, who produced and recorded this episode. I trust that you'll find that he did an amazing job. So Joe, let me pass the mic. Thank you, Brad. In the spring of 2019, the American Academy of Pediatrics put out a policy statement on drowning. Drowning can happen to any family. It's quick and it's silent. Drowning is the number one cause of death among children aged 1 to 4 and is the leading cause of death among teens. We can lower these rates if pediatricians, parents, and policymakers work together to implement the types of solutions we know will keep children safe. So what exactly is drowning? Drowning is a process resulting in primary respiratory impairment from submersion or immersion in a liquid medium. Drowning claims the lives of more than 40 people every hour of every day worldwide. It is the third leading cause of unintentional injury death among U.S. children and adolescents 5 to 19 years old. In 2017, drowning claimed the lives of almost 1,000 U.S. children. About one in five people who die of drowning are children 14 years of age and younger. For every child who dies from drowning, another five receive emergency department care for non-fatal submergent injuries. It is estimated that between one and four near drownings serious enough to result in hospitalization occur for each drowning-related death. There's a bimodal age distribution primarily affecting those 0 to 4 years old and those 12 to 18 years old, and there is a male to female predominance. Rates of drowning are declining over the past 20 years, but it's still estimated that 80 to 90% of drownings are preventable. Risk factors for drowning, according to the AAP policy statement, include inadequate adult supervision, age, inability to swim or overestimation of swimming capabilities, risk-taking behavior, especially alcohol and drug use, concomitant trauma, and underlying medical problems such as arrhythmias, seizure disorders, and developmental or behavioral disorders. Let's explore the pathogenesis of drowning. While drowning begins with a victim's airway, falling below the surface of the water, followed by voluntary breath holding. Small amounts of water are aspirated, leading to involuntary laryngospasm and hypoxia. Large amounts of water are subsequently swallowed. After prolonged hypoxia, laryngospasm stops and large volumes of water are aspirated into the lungs. Surfactant is destroyed, leading to impaired gas exchange and capillary endothelial permeability at the alveolar level. Pulmonary compliance is also greatly diminished. Interpulmonary shunting, bronchospasm, and pulmonary edema result. Vomiting and aspiration of gastric contents adds to the pulmonary dysfunction. These events lead to progressive tissue hypoxia, hypercarbia, and acidosis. Despite previous evidence in animal models, we no longer believe that the amount of water or the type of water aspirated, fresh or salt water, plays a significant role in the drowning pathology. Drowning can occur with as little as 1 to 3 milliliters per kilogram of aspirated liquid, and this is not enough to incur any clinically significant metabolic derangements. Prolonged hypoxia leads to decreased arterial oxygen saturation and decreased cardiac output. 
Hypoxia also leads to intense peripheral vasoconstriction, further decreasing cardiac output and worsening arterial oxygen saturation. Tissue hypothermia eventually develops and causes further vasoconstriction, third spacing, and diuresis. This leads to intravascular hypovolemia and exacerbates the poor cardiac output. Sustained tissue hypoxia, greater than five minutes, leads to irreversible damage to the brain and to the heart. Tachycardia early is followed by bradycardia, then PEA and asystole, leading to mortality. Dysrhythmias, including ventricular fibrillation, are rare. The process is complicated and exacerbated by pre-existing medical conditions such as hypoglycemia, seizures, arrhythmias, and trauma. Rescue and subsequent disruption of this process can mitigate the damage, but considering rescue, hypoxic sequelae such as ARDS, cerebral edema, and myocardial dysfunction can still develop. Hypoxia leads to neuronal injury and cell death resulting in cerebral edema. Increased intracranial pressure and possible herniation then occur. HIE is the most common cause of death and disability in hospitalized drowning victims. The late effects of drowning include cerebral edema, myocardial tissue injury, and ARDS. Overall, the hallmarks of drowning pathophysiology include asphyxia, anoxia, hypothermia, and reperfusion injury. What are the potential outcomes for drowning victims, and are there any ways to predict these outcomes? Potential outcomes are really into four categories. Survival, neurologically intact. Survival, neurologically impaired survival in a persistent vegetative state, and death. But predicting the neurologic outcome after drowning events remains a challenge for emergency department and ICU clinicians. Often, we are unable to definitively say which patients will regain complete neurologic function and which patients will not. Many attempts have been made to identify prognostic factors for pediatric submersion victims in the hopes of tailoring aggressive management, but none have been well supported by the evidence. No single or combination of variables has proven to be reliably predictive of poor outcomes. Habib et al. in 1996 performed a retrospective review of 93 patients, median age 31 months, over a 24-month period who presented with submersion injuries to the EDs of the referring hospitals and PICU of the Children's Hospital of Orange County. They found that no patient who arrived to the ED or PICU comatose and asystolic survived neurologically intact. 23% died or survived only in a vegetative state. Of the patients who died, three expired in the emergency department. And for the patients with poor outcomes, the average asystolic time was 41 minutes and the time to ED arrival was 21 minutes. All the patients with the detectable pulse and blood pressure ultimately returned to pre-submersion neurologic status. Overall, this study found that hemodynamic status in the ED and neurologic status in the ICU are highly predictive of outcomes. In the ED, cardiovascular status was more predictive of outcome than neurologic status. Sohn et al. in 2016 performed a retrospective review of medical records of 29 patients who experienced submersion incidents between 2005 and 2014 in South Korea in order to determine the laboratory or clinical prognostic factors for victims of drowning. They found an increased incidence in summer, particularly in August, although age, sex, season, and place had no impact on outcome. Factors that did have an association with poor prognosis included hypotension with an odds ratio of 40, absent pupillary light reflex with an odds ratio of 15.3, 
a pH of less than 7.2 had an odds ratio of 15.75, bicarbonate level less than 15, an odds ratio of 33, base excess less than minus 10 had an odds ratio of 42, serum glucose greater than 200 had an odds ratio of 12.75, AST and ALT greater than 200, an odds ratio of 10.5, and low level of consciousness, need for intubation, and prolonged need for oxygen therapy greater than seven days were also important predictors of poor outcome. Overall, HIE was found to be the most important complication that affected prognosis. Multiple scoring tools have been studied and developed in order to predict potential outcomes, but none have consistently predicted survival or neurologic status. Overall, better predictive models have been shown in the ICU, but perform poorly in the emergency department setting. A retrospective chart review by Zuckerbron et al. of 50 patients in 2005 found the following factors associated with a poor outcome. Submersion time greater than 5 to 10 minutes, time to effective BLS greater than 10 minutes, resuscitation time greater than 25 minutes, GCS less than 5 on arrival to the ED, persistent apnea in the ED, a pH less than 7.1 on presentation to the emergency department, and this, along with hyperglycemia and an elevated lactate, often indicate a prolonged submersion time. And hypothermia on presentation to the ED was also a poor predictor of outcome. Overall, what they found in this review was that the further out from the event, the more evident the chance of recovery becomes. For example, a GCS less than 5 on arrival to the ICU, as well as profound coma 2-6 to six hours after the event, are more predictive of poor outcomes than they are in the emergency department. Overall, these three studies highlight many factors associated with poor outcomes for patients. However, patients have recovered from prolonged downtimes with meaningful outcomes, so aggressive interventions and thoughtful discussion between the emergency department and the ICU about when to stop resuscitation is necessary. Furthermore, we know that early aggressive resuscitation is a positive predictor of a good outcome. So these patients often require and deserve aggressive management in the emergency department, despite how long they've been down or their presenting status. To further illustrate this point, the management of drowning victims depends on early bystander intervention, prompt EMS activation, and definitive therapy in an emergency department and ICU to ensure the best possible outcomes. The pre-hospital management is critical and life-saving. Rapid identification and action on the part of bystanders can drastically change the outcome for a drowning victim. Pre-hospital management can be thought of as the drowning chain of survival. These links include prevention, recognition, providing flotation, removal from the water, and resuscitation and medical attention. Prevention is the crucial first link as 90% of all pediatric drownings are thought to be preventable. Bystander recognition of a person in distress and immediate call for help with early activation of professional rescue and medical services is the second and also critically important link. Providing flotation to the patient and cautiously attempting rescue while avoiding the rescuer becoming a second victim is the third link. If possible, the administration of a few rescue breaths should be immediately provided prior to removal from the body of water. If no response, assume respiratory arrest has progressed to cardiac arrest and immediately move the patient to a location where CPR can be initiated. This makes the fourth and fifth link somewhat simultaneous. As previously mentioned, early basic life support should be initiated as it has been shown to lead to good outcomes. 
If the patient is breathing but unconscious, a lateral recovery position is appropriate. If the patient is not breathing, five rescue breaths should immediately be administered. Remember basic life support skills, including appropriate airway alignment and opening the airway with a head tilt chin lift maneuver. If no improvement with five rescue breaths, BLS with a 30 to 2 compressions to ventilation ratio should be initiated. BLS by bystanders should continue until signs of life, resuscitator exhaustion, or arrival of EMS. Heimlich maneuver and abdominal thrust to remove fluid from the lungs are not only ineffective, but potentially harmful as they may delay CPR and increase the risk of aspiration more than five-fold. If vomiting does occur, quickly turn the patient on their side, perform suction or finger sweep of the vomitus, and quickly return to CPR. Although a shockable rhythm is a positive predictor of survival, most rhythms are not shockable. IV and IO access should be rapidly attempted by trained individuals. Early intubation or placement of a supraglottic airway is indicated. Epinephrine should be administered by ALS guidelines, although endotracheal epinephrine is not useful in drowning victims. Rapid transfer to an emergency department is critical. Regarding the management of a patient in the emergency department, prior to the patient's arrival, staff should prepare for the patient by setting up equipment for a definitive airway, setting up warming blankets and warm fluids, and assigning individual roles. Once the patient arrives, rapid intervention to reduce hypoxemia, acidosis, and hypothermia should be initiated. Maintain goal saturations of greater than 90%, and RSI for intubation should be employed given the likelihood the patient has a full belly. Due to a pulmonary edema and poor lung compliance, higher PEEP may be necessary to maintain oxygenation. Increases from 5 millimeters of mercury by 2 to 3 millimeters of mercury up to a total of 15 millimeters of mercury while closely monitoring for impaired cardiac output is indicated. Early gastric decompression with a nasogastric or an orogastric tube is indicated to avoid aspiration. Placement of a Foley catheter is also indicated. IV and IO access, if not already obtained, should be quickly initiated. IV and IO access, if not already obtained, should quickly be initiated. Labs including blood glucose, ABG, CBC, renal function panel, lactate, and toxicology screening should also be collected. Due to intravascular volume depletion, rapid resuscitation with crystalloid fluids is critical. Up to 40 mLs per kg is indicated. However, balanced fluid resuscitation to avoid pulmonary edema is important, so monitor your patient's respiratory status closely. Acidosis should resolve with fluids and mechanical ventilation. This often makes the administration of bicarbonate unnecessary. Point-of-care cardiac ultrasound to monitor for cardiac function should be performed as inotropic support may be needed for adequate tissue perfusion. Chest X-ray is also indicated, but understand that the findings on chest X-ray do not always correlate with clinical outcomes. Assume hypothermia and rewarm at a goal rate of 1 to 2 degrees Celsius every hour to a goal of 33 to 36 degrees Celsius. Monitor core temperature with a deep rectal or esophageal probe. Whether to employ passive or active rewarming depends on the severity of the hypothermia, cardiovascular status, and available resources. Passive rewarming is defined as removing wet clothes and applying warm blankets. Active rewarming includes applying heat packs, 
heat lamps, and forest air external rewarmers. Active internal rewarming can be accomplished with warm fluids, warm humidified oxygen, peritoneal dialysis, and even ECMO. ECMO should be considered in patients with profound hypothermia, including a core temperature less than 25 degrees Celsius, or cardiac arrest in the setting of rapid immersion in cold water. Take care when performing active rewarming to avoid thermal burns to the patient. Cardiopulmonary resuscitation can be complicated in the hypothermic patient. At core temperatures less than 30 degrees Celsius, cardioactive medications and defibrillation interventions are typically ineffective. When the core temperature is less than 30 degrees Celsius, you may shock the patient, but do it only once and rapidly continue CPR until the core temperature is greater than 30 degrees. Resuscitation should only be terminated on patients with a core temperature greater than 32 degrees Celsius in whom resuscitation efforts have failed. Consider the etiology of drowning and treat appropriately. Seizures are the most common predisposing event in all ages. Be sure to also consider arrhythmias, intoxication, and trauma, among other etiologies. You should consider trauma team activation based on your institutional practices. Attempt to limit further neurologic damage by avoiding hypercapnia, hypoxia, and hypothermia. Avoid hypercapnia to limit cerebral edema, although this may be challenging in the setting of ARDS. Stop rewarming once a patient is at 33 degrees Celsius to avoid hyperthermia and maintain oxygen saturations greater than 92% to avoid hypoxia. There is no evidence to support therapeutic hypothermia in pediatric drowning victims with evidence of HIE. Antibiotics are only indicated if there are signs of infection, most commonly pneumonia. The disposition for these patients is often very difficult for the emergency medicine provider. The decision to admit to an ICU or hospital bed versus observation in the emergency department or discharge home should consider the severity of the patient's drowning as well as any comorbid or premorbid conditions. The majority of drowning victims are well without any symptoms, and historically, despite this well appearance, all victims of drowning were admitted for observation given concern for sudden clinical deterioration. This thinking has changed over time, luckily, and now only a certain group of symptomatic drowning victims will require admission. Except for our most severe patients, if there are symptoms present, they will primarily be respiratory in nature. I find it easiest to divide patients into three broad potential categories regarding their disposition. Those who are well-appearing and asymptomatic, those who are symptomatic with respiratory distress, and those who are unresponsive with cardiorespiratory collapse. This can feel like an oversimplification, but it is important to help triage patients and determine who can go home, who should be observed, and who needs to be admitted. Noonan et al. in 1996 performed a retrospective chart review of 72 drowning victims. They found that 98% of patients who developed any symptoms did so in the first four and a half hours. Based on their findings, they recommended the following. Asymptomatic patients who are well-appearing in the emergency department should be observed for six to eight hours and discharged if no symptoms develop. Stable, mildly symptomatic patients should be observed for six to eight hours and admitted if they deteriorate or fail to improve. Some more supportive care with supplemental oxygen and evaluation for aspiration or edema with chest x-ray should be performed. Ill, symptomatic patients should be stabilized in the emergency department and subsequently admitted to the ICU or general inpatient unit. Consider an EKG to screen patients for potentially fatal arrhythmias if the history is concerning. Ultimately, most patients can be observed and discharged. 
Management of the more critically ill patients will require a thoughtful, multidisciplinary approach with the goal of maintaining adequate oxygenation, preventing aspiration, and stabilizing body temperature. Regarding the long-term sequelae of drowning, as we have previously discussed, neurocognitive outcomes of children after drowning cannot accurately be predicted early in the course of treatment. Therefore, aggressive treatment, both pre-hospital and in-hospital, is indicated. Quote-unquote miracle resuscitations have been reported after long submersion times. However, they are rare and most commonly occur in small children. The long-term outcomes of survived drowning victims depends primarily on the severity of the initial ischemic brain insult, the effectiveness of immediate resuscitation, and rapid transfer to the emergency department. Subsequent post-resuscitation care in the ICU is also critical. The greater the ischemic insult, the more global and extensive the neurocortical injury. Several attempts have been made to determine neurologic outcomes for pediatric patients after drowning, but data on long-term outcomes is scarce. Unfortunately, many sequelae of drowning may not manifest until several years later, once a child is in school, long after the hospital discharge and follow-up for research studies has been completed. Further, it is known that after a drowning incident, a young child may have grossly intact neurologic examinations at the short-term follow-up. Similarly, it has been reported that neonates who undergo resuscitation at delivery had an increased risk of lower IQ scores eight years later, despite no evidence of encephalopathy initially. Ultimately, we cannot say who will and who will not have good outcomes after a drowning event. What we can say is that some factors are known to be important, such as duration of submersion, need for advanced life support at the scene, duration of CPR, and whether spontaneous breathing and circulation are present on arrival to the emergency department. Outside of these factors, further research is needed to definitively say who will survive neurologically intact and who will suffer profound insult. There is limited data on the long-term pulmonary effects of drowning and future research is still needed. Regarding future research in the areas of drowning management, as we have already discussed, the large volumes of aspirated liquid, commonly water, into the lungs causes a washout of surfactant, which leads to impaired gas exchange and capillary endothelial permeability at the alveolar level. This drastically decreases pulmonary compliance, is toxic to the alveolar and endothelial cells, and results in interstitial and alveolar edema. All of these effects inhibit resuscitatory efforts. Several case reports have suggested the use of exogenous surfactant to treat this aspiration lung injury in submersion victims. A systematic review in 2016 by Atterbury and Remy out of my home institution, Washington University in St. Louis, found nine cases of surfactant use in freshwater drowning victims and concluded based on their evaluation that surfactant may have a beneficial role in the treatment of drowning victims. Further research into this potential therapy is ongoing. I want to highlight a few additional points that may come up in your management of drowning victims. The first is the question of dry drowning. It has previously been the case to utilize the term dry drowning to indicate drowning without aspiration, compared with wet drowning, which by definition occurs with aspiration. It has now been accepted that drowning without aspiration does not occur and the term wet and dry drownings should no longer be used. Near drowning a previously used term to mean people who did not die from a drowning event, has also led to confusion because if it is imprecise and patients can die from near-drowning events days later. This term is also no longer accepted. Silent or passive drowning 
previously applied to unwitnessed drowning events or patients who were found in the water and not moving. The ability of a bystander to make this distinction is problematic, and this term should also be avoided. Secondary drowning previously applied to victims of drowning events who died later due to ARDS, but it also applied to patients who drowned secondary to a precipitating event, such as a fall or a seizure. Due to confusion about the source of the drowning, this term for both applications is to be avoided. Overall, the terms near drowning, dry drowning, wet drowning, and secondary drowning should be avoided. The appropriate terminology defined by the World Congress on Drowning states that drowning is a process resulting in primary respiratory impairment from submersion or immersion in a liquid medium. It is not contingent on outcome. Another question that may come up is, do drowning victims require C-spine precautions? Well, Huang et al. in 2003 evaluated the prevalence of traumatic injuries in children involved in drowning and near-drowning accidents. A 10-year retrospective chart review at an urban tertiary medical center looked at 143 patients. The prevalence of traumatic injury was 4.9%. All injuries were to the cervical spine, and diving was the most common mechanism. Cervical spine injuries were more common in older patients and those with a history of diving prior to the event. Overall, only one patient did not have a clear history of diving. Watson et al. in 2001 performed a cohort study where they evaluated 2,244 patients from 1974 to 1996, including adults and children. They found an incidence of 0.5%, only 11 patients, with cervical spine injuries. All of the 11 patients had submerged in an open body of water, had clinical signs of serious injury, and had a history of diving, motorized vehicle crash, or a fall from height. They overall concluded that cervical spine injury is uncommon in submersion injuries, and suspicion for cervical spine injury is only indicated if the history or exam is concerning for a traumatic mechanism. Cervical spine immobilization is not warranted solely on the basis of history of submersion. So what about cold water drowning? What is it and how does it affect therapy and outcomes? Cold water drowning, defined as a temperature less than 10 degrees Celsius, does not follow the usual pathway of drowning and thus case reports a full neurologic recovery after prolonged submersion, although extremely rare, have been documented. Generally, it is through frozen water when the ambient temperature has been below freezing for some time. The influence of hypothermia on the pathophysiology of submersion injury is not well understood, but two main theories do exist. The first is the diving reflex. This results from exposure of the child's face to cold water. It causes apnea, bradycardia, and profound vasoconstriction. It is postulated that this reflex, coupled with hypothermia, results in hypometabolism, and this hypometabolism may be the reason for improved outcomes after sustained tissue hypoxia. The second theory is rapid cerebral cooling by pulmonary heat exchange due to repeated flushing of the lungs with icy cold water. This leads to intense central hypothermia and resultant hypometabolism. Overall, the rare but extraordinary outcomes of cold water drowning is not well understood. The final and most important part of this topic that I want to discuss is prevention. As I mentioned previously, the vast majority of pediatric drownings are believed to be preventable. It is recommended by the AAP that multiple layers of protection be employed to prevent drowning. Five major inter interventions have been put forth by the AAP policy statement on drowning. 
They are listed in order of descending levels of evidence. The first of these interventions is fencing. Fencing is the most studied and most effective prevention measure. It has been shown to prevent more than 50% of swimming pool drownings in young children. Fencing is defined as an isolation fence enclosed on all four sides so the child cannot access the pool directly from the house. The fence height must be at least four feet with the bottom of the fence no more than four inches off the ground. Vertical supports must be no more than four inches apart. The fence gate must open outward away from the pool and it must be self-closing. The gate must latch greater than four and a half feet off the ground and it must be self-latching. Climb-resistant fencing is also indicated. Life jackets are the second most important prevention measure as they could prevent 85% of boating-related drownings. All children and adolescents should be required to wear U.S. Coast Guard-approved life jackets whenever they are in or on watercraft, and all adults should wear life jackets when boating to model safe behavior and to facilitate their ability to help their child in the case of an emergency. Small children and non-swimmers should wear life jackets when they are near water and when swimming. Parents and caregivers should ensure that any life jacket is approved by the U.S. Coast Guard because many do not meet the standards and safety requirements. Parents should avoid using air-filled swimming aids such as inflatable armbands, neck rings, or quote-unquote floaties in place of life jackets. These aids can deflate and are not designed to keep swimmers safe. The third intervention is swim lessons. Children and parents should learn to swim and learn water safety skills. Because children develop at different rates, not all children will be ready to learn to swim at exactly the same age. There is evidence that swim lessons may reduce the risk of drowning, including for those one to four years of age, but a parent's decision about starting swim lessons or swim survival skills training at any age must be individualized on the basis of the child's frequency of exposure to water emotional maturity, physical and cognitive limitations, and health concerns related to swimming pools. Parents should be reminded that swim lessons will not drown-proof a child at any age. It is critical that swim instructors stress this message as well as the need for constant supervision around water. There is no evidence of benefit of swim lessons in infants under one year of age, and no evidence that it will prevent drowning. Supervision is the fourth most important factor. Adequate supervision is described as close, constant, and attentive supervision of young children in and around any water. It is primary and absolutely essential for prevention of drowning. For beginner swimmers, adequate supervision is described as quote-unquote touch supervision, always within arm's reach to grab a child if they become submerged. Lifeguards and CPR training are the fifth most important factor and, are, and the initiation of prompt bystander CPR is the most effective way to improve outcomes in the event of a drowning accident. Important to note that pool covers and pool alarms alone are not adequate prevention measures. Overall, drowning is a leading cause of early childhood mortality, but it is preventable. Prevention, as mentioned above, followed by prompt rescue resuscitation, activation of EMS, and transport are critical steps to decrease morbidity and mortality. Although it may be rare to see a drowning victim in your emergency department, having the necessary knowledge and skills to effectively manage these patients will help ensure the best possible outcomes. Thank you again, Joe. I hope that we were able to deepen your understanding of drowning and submersion injury. We would love your feedback, so leave a comment on the blog, Send us an email, 
Hit me up on Twitter at PemTweets or on the Facebook page, or leave a review on your favorite podcast site. The feedback is incredibly important in helping me deliver content like this in the future. And this is a message to anybody who wants to learn how to record a podcast episode. Joe took the initiative and reached out to me because he wanted to learn more about creating podcasts. He had a special interest in teaching in this topic, and we worked together over the past couple of months to put this episode together. So let this stand as an open invitation to anyone out there who wants to learn more about the podcast production process and has something to teach about the care of ill or injured children. For Pam Kearns, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast, this has been Brad Soboleski. See you next time.